Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, friend. Welcome back to Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel. I'm your host, Neil Helligers, and this is Dead Air, Episode 5. Please enjoy. Realm Presents Dead Air Episode 5 1. The first thing I do when I roll over in bed the next morning is grab my phone and check Reddit. I uploaded my first podcast episode with the edited interview with Brandon McDonald last night, and I'm curious to see the response. Already there are several threads, and I grin as I settle in to read. Topic Dead Air Episode 4, The Castle on the Cumberland. Fuck you. So, tonight's podcast, discuss. Serial fan. Well, I guess it just comes down to Brandon, whether you believe him or not. It's hard to understand why someone would fake a confession like that. Pod Esquire. You'd be surprised, Serial. According to the Innocence Project, approximately 25% of convicted criminals ultimately exonerated had, in fact, confessed to the crime. Serial fan. Yeah, Pod, but how many of them recanted their confession? I'm guessing all of them if they were exonerated. That's the thing with Brandon. He seems pretty adamant that he's the one who killed Peg. He's still saying he did it 18 years later. Why lie then, and why keep lying now? Fuck you. Because of the huge payout his family got. Duh. Scholar dude. First, there's still no proof that there was a payoff. We only know that his family now appears to have money when they didn't before. Second, even if there was a payoff, it doesn't necessarily mean he lied about his confession. Maybe Brandon did it and Peg's family paid him to plead guilty rather than drag everyone through a big public trial. Besides, there's something else to consider. Who else could have done it? Mackenzie laid out pretty strong evidence of the dad's alibi, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of other suspects. Serial fan. Don't forget about Cox. His horse Socrates won the derby the year Peg was killed, and he was always trash-talking her. Fuck you. So you're saying Cox killed Peg so that her horse would be sad and lose the race? That's some Scooby-Doo-level shit right there. Serial fan. I'm just saying he's worth checking out is all. Fuck you. Get on it, Mackenzie. I pull up the contact info for Curtis Cox at Iron Gate Farm and try giving him a call again. For what feels like the millionth time, I get the voicemail of the house manager. I leave yet another message and hang up. Until he calls me back, I'm at a standstill as far as Cox is concerned. In fact, I feel like I'm at a standstill with the entire investigation. I thought interviewing Brandon would be a huge help, but it's only left me more confused. One minute, I'm positive he's telling the truth about his guilt, and the next, I'm convinced he's lying. But if he's lying, why? That's the wall I keep banging my head against. I still haven't come up with a good reason for him to throw his life away. Sure, his family ended up with a ton of money, but there's no guarantee it came from any kind of payoff, and life behind bars is a high price to pay. So if Brandon didn't murder Peg, that means someone else did. But who? 
Brandon confessed so quickly that the police didn't have time to dig up any other suspects. I'm at a loss as to who or what to investigate next, except fans are going to be expecting another podcast in a week, which means I need to come up with content. Frustrated, I click to the next topic, hoping for some inspiration. It's a poll. Topic, who killed Peg Graham? Brandon McDonald, 61%. Dick Carlisle, 20%. Ryan Graham Carlisle, Peg's son, 1%. Camilla, the nanny, 3%. Curtis Cox, Iron Gate Farm, 6%. A stranger, 3%. Someone else Peg knew, 4%. A horse, of course, 2%. I chuckle at the 1% to Ryan, who was 3 at the time, and the 2% to one of Peg's horses. I can't picture either one of them wielding a firearm very effectively. But it just goes to show that even Redditors are having a hard time coming up with additional suspects. Then, I notice the number of respondents to the poll and almost choke. It's well over a 1,000. Immediately, I pull up my podcast app and check the stats on my latest episode. It's been listened to almost 5,000 times in less than 12 hours. I refresh the page twice just to make sure it's real. It is. I jump out of bed, dancing around my room in celebration. I can't believe it. I swipe to my contact list, excited to share the news, but my finger hovers over the screen. Who can I really tell? The first person I always called with good news was Delilah, but she's gone. My parents don't know about the podcast, and neither does my roommate, Kara, who's probably still asleep anyway. The only person who really knows about the podcast and would understand is Ryan. Right. Ryan. My stomach sours. After last night, I have absolutely no idea what to think about him. I slump back onto the bed. Seeing him at the bar, surrounded by all his bro dudes, has left me feeling uneasy. And the fact that he's been hanging out with Delilah's ex-boyfriend feels like a betrayal. Especially after I opened up to him about her death. I'd really believed he was different from all of them. Like he was the exception to the wealthy douchebag rule. He cares about his classes. He spoke passionately about his future. He didn't drive a flashy car and try to show off. Okay, he drove a flashy car sometimes, but only because that kind of thing matters to his dad. Plus, he seemed genuinely interested in me. But maybe I'd just been seeing what I wanted to, because he looked awfully comfortable with those douches last night, celebrating the Order of St. Franklin, whatever that is. Curious, I Google Order of St. Franklin. I get a list of restaurants in various Franklins all over the country that I can order from. There are way more than you'd ever expect. After clicking through six pages, I give up. I try just searching for St. Franklin. Turns out there is no such saint as I thought, unless you count the numerous images depicting Benjamin Franklin's head superimposed onto saints' bodies, some of which are rather disturbing. I consider asking Reddit if anyone knows about the order, but I'm not sure I'm ready for that step. As much as I appreciate all the research they've done, well, except for the research effectively doxing me, the Redditors feel a little uncontrollable. They're like a pack of wild animals I can point at a problem and unleash. Except this problem involves Ryan, and I feel like I should know a little more before I unleash the hounds on him. Also, I don't want him seeing the post and realizing that I know about the order. And since I can't really move forward in my investigation until I hear back from Curtis Cox or come up with a new suspect to investigate, I figure there's no reason not to spend a couple of hours looking into the Order of St. Franklin. At the very least, it will give me something to do. With the dearth of information online, it looks like I'm going to have to go about this research the old-fashioned way. 2. I bring donuts with me to the library. It's my way of apologizing for leaving my research materials scattered all over the table the last time I was in here. I've learned in life that it's always smart to keep the research librarians on your side. They know everything, and what they don't know, they can find. Except, apparently, when it comes to the Order of St. Franklin. That has all three reference librarians stumped. And I'm not much help, either. 
All I can tell them is that I overheard a friend mention it and there was some sort of induction involved. If it's local and some sort of club, your best bet is going to be the society pages, one of the librarians suggests. And since we're not turning anything up with computer searches, that means digging into the archives. Which is how I find myself in the Kentucky room, in front of a glowing screen with a large stack of microfiche by my side. Each one contains months' worth of newspapers, and I quickly learn that the society news section is always on the last page. That makes it much easier to find and skim through. I expect the research to be boring, but instead, I'm instantly intrigued. I've never really given much thought to society pages before. It turns out they're basically like old, outdated Facebook feeds. It's the most mundane stuff, but it's also fascinating because they're full of tiny little snapshots of life enshrined in print forever. Guests in the home of Bert Humphrey were Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Davies and son of Maple Lake, Indiana. Mrs. Blair Burnett and children of Charlestown, Indiana, have returned to their home after spending a week with her mother, Mrs. Ida Fly of Cornetsville. Mrs. J.L. Collins had as Sunday dinner guests Dr. and Mrs. L. Henry Collins and little son Franklin T. of Salem. I mean, who cares? And yet, I can't look away. There are listings of children born, birthday parties thrown, with attendance recorded and noted, dinner party guests invited and turned down, out-of-town visitors, vacation plans, social visits, but nothing about the Order of St. Franklin. Either it doesn't exist, it doesn't bear mentioning, which is hard to believe given what is worth mentioning, or its existence is being intentionally kept secret. None of those possibilities make the likelihood of me finding any real information on the subject very promising. Eventually, my vision starts to blur from the tiny print, and I decide to call it quits on this avenue of research. The internet was a bust. The archives at the library were a bust. Which leaves me one last source of information on the Order of St. Franklin. Ryan Carlisle Graham. If I want to learn more about this order, I'm going to have to go straight to the source. Three. On the walk home from the library, I consider how to approach Ryan about the Order of St. Franklin. Finally, I decide that I don't have to. I just need an excuse to get out to the farm so I can snoop around a little more. And since he's supposed to be my partner in the investigation of his mother's murder, I decide to use that to my advantage. I text him. I feel like I'm at a standstill with the investigation. Any chance you're free to chat and figure out next moves? He responds almost instantly. Sure. Where do you want to meet up? Third Street? How about I come to you? I answer. My tour last time was cut a little short, and I'd like to look around the farm some more. (sighs) Sounds good. When? I spent the morning digging through the archives at the library and haven't showered yet. How about in an hour? (sighs) That works. Find anything interesting at the library? My first instinct is to reply with a curt no and leave it at that. But since he didn't see me at the bar last night, he has no reason to believe I'm mad at him. As far as he's concerned, nothing has changed. We're still partners. I take a deep breath and remind myself that that's a good thing. He's still useful. I want him on my good side. That's the point. I know now who was invited to every dinner party in this city between the years 1938 and 1949, I tell him. (sighs) Don't tell me that's the information we've been missing that unlocks the entire case. Lol. Unfortunately, no. See you in about an hour. I wish I could say I don't take a little extra time with my appearance, but I'd be lying. I try to be subtle about it, at least. Just a little hint of blush and mascara, and I blow-dry my hair rather than leaving it wet. Most of my wardrobe is college student grunge, but my mother has pestered me enough that I do have a few springier pieces. I throw on a flowered skirt, but dress it down with a white tank top and flip-flops. I don't want him to think I'm trying to impress him because I'm not. Maybe before last night I would have been, but now that he's shown his true douchey colors, that ship has sailed. The drive through the countryside is the same as before. Drop-dead gorgeous views of horse farms and rolling green hills. 
This time, when the fence along the road shifts, indicating that I've crossed onto Hearthstone Farm land, I'm acutely aware that all of this belongs to Ryan. Every fence post, every grazing horse, every tree and blade of grass. I can't fathom having that amount of responsibility. I can barely even keep a plant alive, much less a working estate. I'm sure the family has land managers and business managers and every manner of help money can buy. But still, ultimately, everything traces back to him. It's just another reminder that we come from two very different worlds, as if I needed another reminder as the castle-like Graham Carlisle house comes into view in the distance. Just like last time, butterflies tangle in my stomach as I turn into the drive. Unlike last time, I bypass the stables and drive straight up to the main house. I can't even begin to explain how out of place my beat-up old Toyota looks parked in front of Ryan's giant mansion. But Ryan doesn't seem to notice as he steps out the front door and waves, like he's just been standing there waiting for me. He looks good, comfortable and handsome, in khaki pants, a polo shirt, and boat shoes. He smiles as he jogs down the steps toward me. I hate that I notice the dimple in his cheek, hate that my cheeks still flush when he draws near. I plaster on a smile. Was that just good timing, or were you waiting for me? We have a motion detector at the base of the driveway. If a car doesn't have an RFID tag indicating that it's one of ours, we get an alert. So he wasn't waiting after all. That puts my ego right back in check. But it's still an interesting piece of information. I didn't know those existed. He nods. There is also a scale built into the driveway down near the gates. It senses the weight of cars as they enter, and if they're too heavy when they try to leave, it shuts the gates. That way, no one can drive off with any of the horses. Is horse napping a common problem? My grandfather prefers to be safe rather than sorry, in most areas of life. You never really talk much about your grandfather, I point out. Tell me more about him. He's... Ryan hesitates, his hands in his pockets. Someone else answers for him. He's an asshole, that's what. I turn to find an older woman approaching from the barns. She's wearing jodhpurs, tall black boots, a crisp button-down shirt, and a large string of pearls around her neck. Her hair is white and pulled back in an elegant bun, and her lipstick is perhaps the brightest pink I have ever seen on a human being. Beside me, I practically feel Ryan cringe at the sight of her. Despite that, the love he feels for her is obvious in his voice. Hi, Grandma. She ignores him and sticks out a hand toward me. Georgia Graham, she says, Ryan's grandmother. And you are? I can't help being frozen for a moment. At the Derby, everyone ignored me, so I'm not expecting Ryan's grandmother to show such keen interest right away, especially given that I don't yet notice any hint of judgment in her interest, only curiosity. Mackenzie Walker, I say, stumbling over my own name. Because, let's face it, even the Mackenzie part of me is intimidated by this woman. Her handshake is firm, the calluses along her fingers and palms obvious. She holds my fingers a beat longer than is comfortable as she looks me over. What are you doing here? Ryan asks, clearly attempting to interrupt her perusal. Riding, she says, still looking at me. You have your own horses. He doesn't say it in a confrontational way. He just seems surprised by her presence and perhaps a little suspicious of her motives. I wanted to ride good girl. You know it always reminds me of my peg. Ryan clamps his mouth shut and Georgia smiles. That one wins the argument every time, she says to me in a conspiratorial tone. A muscle twitches along Ryan's jaw. Shall I call down to the barn and make sure she's saddled for you? She waves a hand. No need. I can saddle my own damn horse. Besides, I think I'd like to spend a bit of time getting to know your friend first. He makes a sound in his throat that makes it obvious that's the last thing he wants. I can't tell if he's trying to protect me or himself. She gestures toward the porch. Shall we? I glance toward Ryan, unsure what to do. Georgia laughs and leans toward me. 
Don't worry about him. He's just afraid I'll tell you all of this family's dirty secrets. She winks. And I will. So long as you answer a few of my questions first. Grandma, Ryan starts to protest. Without taking her eyes off me, she says, Ryan, dear, go fetch your grandmother a drink. It's a command more than a request. Then she tucks her arm into mine and steers me to the porch, leaving Ryan speechless in our wake. It feels as though the entire back and forth has been a battle that Georgia has just won, which apparently makes me the prize. Hello, friend. This is Neil Helligers, host of Adrenaline Realm's Thriller channel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit more about the Greenlight app. And this message is, of course, sponsored by Greenlight, but I was using, our family was using the Greenlight app uh, even before the first ad in a wonderful, thrilling, cosmic coincidence, right? See what I did there? So again, to catch you up, Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. Basically, the way it works is that parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their kids' spending and saving. And you can see exactly how much money they have in their account, and there's different ways to give them money. What we've been doing is on a, like a weekly allowance, a certain amount that goes into his account every week. So in order to further the conversation about money and about earning, uh, we're using Greenlight as a kind of a foundation for that conversation. Uh, in other words, instead of just the allowance he gets for certain base things that he's expected to do around the house, uh, we are also adding the chore feature, which is certain one-time payments for certain one-time jobs. For example, in our house, we're trying to encourage our son to start walking the dog more. He's old enough for it, he's responsible enough for it, and he's done it enough that he knows what to do. So he can really see that for all those extra times that he steps up and does the dog walk, he gets rewarded for that job well done. And this is the conversation. In life, when you work a little extra harder, you get a little extra compensation, and you can either save that up or spend it how you like. And we're not alone in this. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's a very easy and very convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate life together. So sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash adrenaline. That's greenlight.com slash adrenaline to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash adrenaline slash 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 slash. So thrilling, right? On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Four. Let's start with the basics. Georgia says when we're both settled in rocking chairs on the porch. How do you know my grandson? We're friends, I tell her, from school. Her eyebrow arches at the word friends. How good of a friend. I'm glad Ryan hasn't returned with any drinks, because I would have choked on mine. Um, just friends. We're not dating or anything, if that's what you're asking. But I feel my cheeks heating anyway, and I'm almost positive she notices. Shame. He's a pretty good catch. Takes after his mother, thank God. His father. She doesn't finish the statement, just makes a disgusted face and waves a hand. I don't know his father very well, I say, hoping that she'll use the opening to tell me more. She doesn't. Instead, she asks, How did you two become friends? I'm trying to figure out how much to tell her when Ryan reappears. He carries two tall glasses of ice water. He hands one to me, and I take it gratefully, sucking most of it down in one gulp. Georgia takes one sip and winces. Water? You know me better than that. What can I bring you instead, grandmother? He stresses that last word, and she narrows her eyes to show her displeasure. Mint julep. Now run along. Ryan hesitates and glances toward me to make sure I'm okay. I smile to show that everything is fine. The minute he's back inside, Georgia resumes her inquiry. You were saying about how you met my grandson? We're in Anthro together. That doesn't feel like enough of an excuse, so I add, we're working on a project for class. It's close enough to the truth. She purses her mouth, 
The wrinkle around her lips indicates she was a smoker, but the lack of stains around her fingers suggests she quit some time ago. Would that be the project involving my daughter's murder? This time, I really do choke. I press my hand against my chest and draw in a wheezing breath. That's what I get for lying. You know about that? I ask. You think I wouldn't find out that someone is investigating my daughter's death and broadcasting it to the world? She has a good point. I'm sorry, I tell her, my voice still a little raspy. You have every right to be upset, and she does that impatient hand wave thing at me, cutting me off. Enough about that. I'm curious what you found. I blink. This is not at all the response I was expecting. I take another sip of water, trying to buy myself time and figure out what to say. It's not that the investigation is secret. I've obviously been sharing every step on my podcast. It's just different to share those details with the victim's mother directly, in person. But then I realize, this woman is made of steel. She's probably used to people withering under the strength of her personality. So far, she's done everything in her power to throw me off balance, and perhaps I should try the same thing in return. I lift an eyebrow. Is there something to be found? For a moment, there's silence and I cringe. My southern upbringing howls inside me at the impropriety of my question. I'm about to stutter an apology when she laughs. She nods at me approvingly. I like you. Somehow, I have the feeling that winning this woman's approval isn't usually so easy. Ryan returns at that moment, carrying a highball glass filled with light amber liquid sloshing around a large ball of ice. Your drink, he says, presenting it to her. She glances at the glass, then up at him. A mint julep should have crushed ice, Ryan. Ice is ice, he grumbles. She raises an eyebrow at him. Oh? It's a tone of voice that brooks no argument. He sighs and takes her glass inside. When we're alone again, she leans back in her rocking chair. I hear you went to the jail and talked to Brandon McDonald. Do you believe him? I try to choose my words carefully, remembering how angry he got when I questioned him. He was very adamant about his guilt. And did he convince you? I don't know. Maybe it's a cop-out answer, but it's the truth. She stares off across the farm, silent. I used to hate him, she finally says. Used to? I ask. She considers me for a moment. Have you ever lost anyone important to you? I'm caught off guard enough that I answer honestly. My cousin, Delilah, she was like a sister to me. She passed away last year. She leans toward me. Tell me about Delilah. I realize it's a question I haven't been asked in ages. My parents don't like to talk about her. My aunt, Delilah's mother, refuses to mention her name because the grief is too much. And so, for months, ever since her death, I've had all of these memories trapped inside me. How do I even pick which ones to share? She was fearless. She wore what she wanted, liked bands even if they weren't cool. She never hesitated to strike up a conversation with a stranger, never worried what others might think. I smile, remembering her. I was in awe of her. She nods. It's clear she understands. How did Delilah die? My chest tightens with a feeling almost like panic. This is a question I've always danced around before, but somehow I feel like I owe Georgia the truth. An overdose, I tell her. I can't keep the edge from my voice. I expect her expression to fold into sympathy or disapproval. Instead, a ghost of a smile crosses her face. Hating won't bring her back. It just poisons the soul. That's why I don't hate Brandon McDonald anymore. Her words hit like a punch to the gut. Part of me had hated Delilah after her death. I didn't understand how she could have done something like that to herself. How she could have gotten so far down the path that there was no turning back. And I hated myself for not even realizing she was on that path in the first place. I swallow around the tightness in my throat and stare down at the ice cubes in my water. 
Thankfully, that's when Ryan returns again, giving me a chance to compose myself. He gives the glass he's carrying a shake. Crushed ice as you requested, he says, holding it out to her. She takes it and sniffs. Her nose wrinkles. Oh, Ryan, this is Stag Jr. That's better for sipping. I prefer Woodford Reserve for a julep. Seriously? She holds the drink out to him. Rolling his eyes, he takes it and heads back into the house. Once he's gone, I shift the topic of conversation. You don't seem to like Ryan's father or grandfather very much. She barks a laugh. <laughs> That's an understatement. Tell me more. She takes a moment to think about it. I grew up poor, she says. The kind of poor that if we didn't grow it or shoot it, we didn't eat. I never expected any different kind of life for myself. But my Stanley, he had dreams. From the time he was a kid, he saved every cent he earned. He had more than $500 in the bank when we got married, and I felt like I'd won the lottery. She chuckles. Stanley was a man of the land. He wanted his own farm, and eventually his own ranch, and so we moved to where we could buy the cheapest land, Texas. He plowed every cent he earned into buying more land. She smiles somewhat impishly. It just so happens that man had a knack for finding land with oil underneath it. We were multimillionaires by the time we were in our forties. That's the only life Peg ever knew. An almost disgusting overabundance of wealth. But we made sure she understood the value of work. We gave her horses, but she was in charge of mucking out their stalls and caring for them. I bought Heartstone for her, but she's the one who found the land and came to me with a business plan. Peg had money, but she understood its value. The Carlyles. She makes a sour face and shakes her head. Peg was a romantic. What she saw in that dick, I'll never know. But his family had history and roots. That's something we could never give her. She sighs. I just thank God Peg listened to me about leaving her estate to Ryan. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything left for him, given the way his father is with women and gambling. What about Ryan's grandfather? I ask. Her eyes turn hard. That man is a misogynistic snake. He thinks a woman's place is in the kitchen, and anyone beneath him was born to serve him. Even though he doesn't live here, he hates that I visit all the time, especially wearing such provocative clothing at my age. She uses air quotes around several of the words, then she winks. Why do you think I come over so often? It's too easy to rile that man. I've made quite the hobby of it. I can't help but smile. I realize that Georgia reminds me of Delilah. She has that same spark, that same sense that she's not going to allow someone else to dictate her life. What did he think of Pig? I asked her. From everything I've read about her, she doesn't seem like she was any kind of wilting lily. She wasn't, Georgia says with pride, and Richard hated that about her. Enough to be involved in her death? I want to ask the question so badly, and the words are right on the tip of my tongue when Ryan returns once more, a new drink in his hand. He proffers it to Georgia like he's presenting a priceless gem. She sips and pulls a face. This mint isn't fresh. Did you pick it from the garden down by the barns? You know that's always the best, well fertilized and all that. He closes his eyes for a long moment, inhaling deeply before opening them again. You know, grandmother, you could always just tell me you want to speak with Mackenzie alone and ask me to give you some time. She smiles at him. I could, but then I wouldn't have nearly as much fun, nor would I end up with a drink at the end. Now, hurry along. Three sprigs of mint should do just fine. Anything for you, he says, kissing her on the cheek before depositing the glass by her side. He shoots me a what-can-you-do look and jogs down the porch stairs and toward the barns at the bottom of the hill. He's a good kid, Georgia says. The love she feels for him brims in her voice and her eyes. I nod, but say nothing, because I'm still confused after seeing him with his bros last night. 
Maybe Georgia can help me with that. Do you happen to know anything about the Order of St. Franklin? She laughs. That stupid good old boys club? Ridiculous, if you ask me. Bunch of bored, wealthy men sitting around being proud of themselves for being born rich and privileged. They think they're all fancy with their silly rituals. They even wear matching pins, for heaven's sake. Some sort of flower or something poncy like that. Seems to undermine the whole secret aspect if you go around advertising your membership on your chest like that. She clicks her tongue against her teeth. Waste of time. Her comment sparks a connection. Last night, Ryan's bros were wearing pins too. And at the derby, when I'd met Ryan's grandfather, he'd been wearing a pin in the shape of a flower. I think back to Dick's alibi photo. A group of men, all in tuxes, all wearing some sort of pin. One that looked like a flower. The Order of St. Franklin. It has to be. They're all members. I glance toward where Ryan is making his way back up from the barn. The latest inductee. Of course he is. Like grandfather, like father, like son. Ryan was destined for the Order of St. Franklin the moment he was born. I wonder what Georgia would say if she knew her grandson was in the process of being inducted. I think about telling her, but it's not my place. I'm not a member of this family, even if I am well on my way to finding out all its secrets. Five. Ryan returns with a mint, and Georgia is apparently finally satisfied with her drink. After only one sip, however, she stands abruptly. I think I'll go freshen up, she says. She's definitely wearing a mischievous grin as she heads into the house. Ryan chuckles. She's not the most subtle. He takes the seat next to me. I hope she wasn't too overwhelming. Georgia can be a lot for some people. She's wonderful, I say truthfully. He smiles. What did you two talk about? Mostly she just went on and on about how great you are. I say with a straight face. His cheeks turn pink with embarrassment. She didn't. Only a little bit, I tease, nudging him with my elbow. The moment my arm touches his, his eyes meet mine, and there's an intensity to them that makes me catch my breath. Suddenly, it's easy to forget that my interest in him is a ruse, that I'm supposed to be mad at him, that I am mad at him. Except that watching him with his grandmother has thrown me, Maybe I've misjudged him. Again. That confusion is what stops me from pulling away as his lips part and he leans closer. I have the craziest feeling that he wants to kiss me. It causes my heart to pound furiously. So what do you want to do with the rest of the afternoon? He asks softly. The air between us is heavy. My mind races and my body screams to just stop thinking and start doing, to get on with it and reach for him. But the moment is broken by an incessant buzzing. It's not my phone, which means it must be his. He drops his head and lets out a short, irritated breath. Sorry, he says. He pulls his phone out and frowns at the display. I don't have a chance to see the caller ID before he swipes and says hello. The voice on the other end is loud enough for me to hear. Bro, dude, glad you answered. I need a favor from you before the induction ceremony. I'm not trying to listen in, I swear, but the words induction ceremony grab my attention. They must be discussing the Order of St. Franklin. I stiffen. Ryan must notice, because his eyes cut to mine. I pretend to be intently focused on the ice melting in my glass. Hold on, he says, standing. He pulls the phone away and whispers to me. It's about an upcoming race. It won't take long. I smile like I believe him, and then strain to listen as he walks down the porch. I only hear him say, Oh, it's no one, before he's too far away for me to catch anything more than a word or two. I assume the no one he's referring to is me. My blood boils. I'm even angrier that I almost let myself fall under his spell once more. After talking to Georgia, I was almost convinced he wasn't a bad guy. But there are few things more humiliating than a guy choosing to take a call from his bro dude instead of kissing you. I shake my head. Even worse, I've once again let myself get distracted from the peg investigation by the very person who is supposed to be helping me.
except, I suddenly wonder, how helpful has he truly been? I think back to the lunch where I showed him the alibi photo. He'd been distinctly uninterested. When I pointed out that it looked like all the men were wearing similar pins, he'd shrugged it off as some sort of derby thing. It had never even occurred to me to verify that fact. It didn't occur to me that he might be lying. My cheeks flush with anger as I remember how he'd dismissed my suggestion of enhancing the photo to get a better view of the details. He didn't want me to because he didn't want me to realize that the pins weren't derby-related. He didn't want me to figure out there's some sort of membership badge for the Order of St. Franklin. What if that's been his intention from the beginning? What if his offer to help was a ruse? I mentally scan through our interactions, trying to figure out what he's added to the investigation. Mostly, he's just watched me closely, always wanting to know what I've uncovered. Because he's been using me. My first instinct is to jump to my feet and confront him, but as good as that would feel, it wouldn't really get me anywhere, because Ryan is still useful. I just need to stop letting him distract me from what's important. Ryan finishes his call and strides back up the porch toward me, his expression a little more pinched than before. Sorry, he says, setting his phone on the table and resuming his seat. He leans toward me, letting a smile slide across his lips. Where were we? I don't even know how to respond. Thankfully, I don't have to, because we're interrupted again, this time by George's return. She takes one look at us sitting so closely together and grins. I think it's time I head home. Walk me to my car down at the barns, Ryan. Whatever else he might be, Ryan's still a dutiful grandson. He stands without protest and offers his arm. Before she goes, Georgia gives me a wave. It was lovely to meet you, Mackenzie, she says. I hope to see you again soon. I smile in return. You too. They've barely reached the driveway when my eyes fall on Ryan's phone. He's left it sitting on the table between us. If he's like everyone else in the world, he has his entire life stored on there. And I've seen him unlock it enough times that I have an idea what his password is. I at least know the pattern of numbers. I curl my fingers against my palms, trying to resist reaching for it. It would be wrong, both personally and as a journalist. It's his private information, and I don't have a right to go snooping through it without his permission. That's one of the first things we covered in my intro to journalism class. Except, he's been lying to me and using me. The temptation is just too much. I glance again toward Ryan and Georgia. They're only a quarter of the way to the barns and walking slowly. If I'm going to do this, I need to do it now while I've got time to do a thorough search. Heart pounding, I swipe at his phone. I close my eyes and picture him entering his code when we were at lunch the other day and his fingers were greasy from french fries. I try to replicate the numbers. The phone buzzes. Incorrect passcode. I curse under my breath. Three wrong attempts and the phone will lock and Ryan will know I tried to open it. I can't afford that, which means I have to get it right on the second attempt. Holding my breath, I try again, switching two of the numbers. The screen fills with his apps. I want to let out a whoop of success, but keep my lips pressed tight as I bring up his recent calls. The last one was from Travis, Delilah's boyfriend. I cringe. Ryan had been very clear to me before that they weren't friends, but as I scan his call list, I see the name repeated over and over again. My mood darkens. There are other names, too, and other numbers, none of which mean anything to me. I pull out my own phone and start taking photos of his screen. I figure at this point, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right and get as much information as I can. I check Ryan's progress again. They're nearing the barns, but I still have time. My thumb hovers over his email app. I hesitate. That feels like it may be too much of an invasion of privacy. Instead, I skip over to his photos. There are a lot of pictures of horses and the farm, and a few selfies that I try not to judge. As I scroll back in time, I begin to grow a little uncomfortable. I feel like a voyeur, spying on all these snippets from his life. There are parties with friends, shots of keggers and beer pong. There's a campfire with a girl with long blonde hair and soft pink earmuffs. A Christmas parade, a Halloween costume contest. 
And then there's a face that sends a jolt through every molecule in my body. Delilah. It's a formal party, and she's dressed for it. A teal dress, hair in soft waves down her back, eyes smoky and dark. I close my eyes, see that same face pouting out at me on FaceTime. Come with me, she says. I won't know anyone, I tell her. You'll know me. You'll be busy with your boyfriend. I won't, I promise, she tells me. Let's get brunch tomorrow instead. She sighs. You're the worst. Love you too, Delilah. She makes a kissing face and then hangs up. And that's the last time I ever spoke to her. The next morning, I texted her about brunch and never heard back. Typical Delilah, I thought, blowing me off again. Then the cops called. Escaping from the memory is like surfacing from the bottom of the ocean. I draw great gulping breaths, blinking against the sudden shift in my surroundings. In a panic, I glance toward the barns. Ryan has already started back. He sees me look his way and waves as he makes his way up the grassy hill. I curse. I need these pictures. I need to figure out where they were taken, who she was with, all details that have remained a mystery until now. I throw caution to the wind and start selecting photos, as many as I can find that look to be from that night. I keep an eye on Ryan's progress as I click to email them all to myself. Come on, come on, come on, I mutter under my breath as his phone churns. Finally, the message sends and I click over to his email, deleting any evidence from the sent folder and trash. With that done, I drop the phone back on the table. My heart pounds, sweat drips down the back of my neck and my hands tremble. Ryan was with Delilah the night she died. I don't know what this means, except that it feels like it changes everything, and I need a chance to process it. Alone. By the time Ryan reaches the porch, I'm already standing. He can sense something is wrong. He frowns. Everything okay? I force a smile, but I know it's strained. Yeah, I forgot that I have dinner at my parents, and I was supposed to go over early to help my mom with something, and I totally spaced, and now she's upset, so I have to run. I keep talking all the way to my car, pausing just long enough to take a breath and finish with, Bye, I'll talk to you later. And then I'm gone, leaving a very confused Ryan in my wake. I have every intention of bailing on dinner and retreating to my apartment to study those photos, but then I remember the boxes stored at the bottom of my closet in my childhood bedroom. I'd been the one in charge of packing up Delilah's apartment, and I'd stuffed everything personal in boxes, intending to sort through it all later, when my grief wasn't so raw. I'd thrown them in my closet at my parents' house and never touched them again. Maybe it's time I faced them. Six. There's always something reassuring about stepping into my childhood home. The coffee table might be new, the furniture rearranged, but there's still the same sense of place. The same smells, the same clatter of dishes in the kitchen, the same bickering as my mother reminds my father for the millionth time to please clear his books off the table so we can eat without being surrounded by pictures of dissected amphibians. When I reach the kitchen, the air is warm from the oven and humid from a pot of boiling water. Oh, good, you're here. There's lettuce in the fridge that needs washing, my mom says, not even missing a beat, as if I still live here full time. I slip easily into the same routines from when I was a kid, making the salad, pulling down the plates, setting out the silverware. Over dinner, Dad complains about the school administration, while Mom regales us with her attempts to explain to a newbie local farmer that the herd of goats he'd purchased were actually fainting goats, and that's why they kept freezing and falling over. They ask how school is going, and I shrug and say fine. Classes are almost over, and I've registered for summer school to make up for my semester off and the change in my major. I don't bring up the podcast, or Peg Graham, or horse racing. I stay later than usual, and we open a second bottle of wine, which gives me an excuse to spend the night. No reason to tempt fate drinking and driving, I tell them. My mom is delighted. She loves having the entire family under one roof. We say goodnight, and I retreat to my childhood room and close the door. Then, I sit on the bed, staring at the closet, giving my parents time to fall asleep. 
Finally, the house settles into silence, and I push myself up and open the closet door. The boxes are still there, neatly stacked, each one marked in red sharpie with Delilah's name. It takes me a while to get up the courage to slide the top one off and set it on the floor. It's not like I'm completely ignorant of what's in these boxes. Even though I was in an emotional haze at the time, I'd paid attention when I'd been packing up Delilah's room, keeping my eye open for anything that might have been helpful for the police. There was nothing. The top box is crammed with old textbooks. I flip through the pages to make sure there aren't any notes tucked inside before setting them aside. There's really no reason to hang on to them, and I might as well try to sell them back. The second box is junk from her desk drawers. Tangled paper clips, rubber bands, pens, a stapler, hole punch, a box of monogrammed stationery I'd given her for Christmas the year before. The third box holds her class notebooks. My eyes tear up at the sight of her familiar handwriting, precise and neat in some places, giving way to ragged cursive when she's in a hurry. Her notes are sprinkled with her own commentary, like, King Henry VIII's death. 1547, caused by being an obese asshole who deserved every pus-filled boil on his woman-hating body. At the bottom of the box is her investigative journalism binder. I carry it with me to bed and prop it on my knees. I trace my finger over her name scrawled on the front cover. She's actually the reason I switched majors. Someone needed to carry that torch for her. Maybe that's why this peg investigation is so important to me. To Delilah, truth and justice were synonymous. It's one of the reasons I've had such a difficult time with her death. I don't understand how heroin has anything to do with truth or justice. Swiping at a stray tear, I crack open the binder. Like the other notebooks, the pages are filled with class notes. I flip through them, watching the dates scrawled in the margins progress closer and closer to her death. Three weeks before she died, she'd written FINAL PROJECT in all caps at the top of the page and jotted notes about the parameters and scope of the assignment. It was a real-world exercise. They were to conduct their own investigation and write up their results as if they were actual journalists working in a newsroom. On the next page, she'd started a list of ideas. She'd drawn a box around one of them and underlined it several times, indicating the subject she'd chosen. My heart stumbles when I read what it is. The Order of St. Franklin. Instantly, I'm wide awake, adrenaline pouring through my system. Delilah knew about the Order of St. Franklin. She'd been investigating it. My mind spins, and I force myself to calm down and take a deep breath. Don't assume, I whisper to myself. Verify. If Delilah actually was investigating the Order of St. Franklin, she would have taken notes. I need to find them. I flip through the rest of the binder, but there's nothing. I flip through the other notebooks again, just in case. Still nothing. The next logical place to look would be her laptop, but her mom had it wiped so she could donate it to charity. And since her phone was never recovered, I can't check that either. Anything electronic Delilah worked on at school is gone. But who doesn't have a backup somewhere? My old laptop is still sitting on my desk, and I boot it up. It takes forever, and I almost rip my hair out with impatience. Finally, I open a browser window and navigate to Dropbox. Delilah's email address is easy. The question is her password. I type in the one she's been using for the last decade. Hey there, Delilah, with threes for ease in the word there. It works, and I shake my head. I'd been telling her for years she should change it up. Now, I'm glad she didn't listen to me. I start clicking through her folders, trying to figure out her organizational structure, when I realized that if she was working on this investigation in the month before she died, any files she created would have been opened most recently. I arrange them by date and start clicking through one by one. I hit jackpot on the seventh file. It's a .txt file titled StreetCache, C-A-C-H-E, and it's buried in her utilities folder. Anyone randomly going through her computer would probably overlook it completely. I would have as well if I didn't know what I was looking for. But cash, C-A-C-H-E, sounds like cash, C-A-S-H, and the abbreviation for street is S-T. Who is the patron saint of money? 
St. Franklin of the $100 Bill. This is a file about the Order of St. Franklin, and for some reason, she went through a lot of effort to keep it hidden. Maybe because she was dating Travis and she didn't want him stumbling across her investigation, especially if she was using him as an unwitting source. Or maybe it was more than that. Maybe there was something about the Order of St. Franklin that had her scared. The more I read through her notes, the more I'm convinced it might be the latter. 7. I'm still awake when the sun rises the next morning. I've been up all night, reading and rereading Delilah's notes, trying to make sense of it all. She'd figured out quite a bit, more than I have. For example, the flower pins all the members wear? It's hemlock, a nefarious poison with a storied history. Hemlock is what Socrates used to kill himself, which makes me think of Curtis Cox of Irongate Farm. His horse, Socrates, won the derby the year Peg was murdered. I wonder if there's a connection? Delilah had also compiled a list of names she suspected were members of the order. I recognized several of them as the men in Dick Carlyle's alibi photo, which doesn't surprise me. I am surprised, however, by the arrows drawn between them, creating an intricate web of relationships that she describes with carefully written notes. Most of them seem to be financial, money lent, money owned, money lost. Some are business-related, joint ventures, mergers, partnerships. Several are downright accusations, insider trading, fraud, money laundering. Apparently, the group even invested in a few horses together. At the bottom of the page is a list of horse names, the races they'd placed in, and the size of the purse. These men had made a fortune on the tracks, all of it funneled through innocuous-sounding LLCs that Delilah had tried to trace but failed when they dead-ended in offshore accounts. But that's not all she dug up. In her last entry, she'd cut and pasted an old obituary of a woman named Penelope Merriweather, who appeared to be the late wife of one of the suspected members. She'd passed away suddenly a few years ago, though the obituary was vague on the details. Her grown daughter, however, was convinced her mother's death was suspicious. She'd even gone to the cops, though apparently nothing ever came of it. According to Delilah's notes, the daughter's concerns were dismissed as sour grapes after it was revealed she'd been excluded from her mother's will. Delilah didn't seem to be convinced. She wondered if there might have been a connection to the Order of St. Franklin. As chilling as that theory is, it's the last note in the file that truly makes my blood run cold. Below the entry about Penelope Merriweather, there's a single name underlined twice. Peg Graham. For a moment, I simply stare, speechless. I try to remember if Delilah ever brought Peg up, if somehow subconsciously that's where I got the idea to tell the story of her murder, but she never talked about any of this stuff with me. I lean back against my bed, stunned by the amount of information Delilah had amassed. I knew she was a passionate journalist, but I never really realized how incredibly skilled she was. I'm suddenly chagrined by my own feeble investigative efforts. The police report attached to Dick Carlyle's alibi photo contained a partial list of Order of St. Franklin members, and I still hadn't managed to figure any of this stuff out. I feel like a failure. Not just with Peg and the Order of St. Franklin, but with Delilah as well. I wasn't there for her the night she died, and I haven't pursued any questions about her death nearly as hard as I've pursued my investigation into Peg's. Maybe it's time for me to change that. I pull up my email and flip again through the photos I'd sent myself from Ryan's phone. From Delilah's notes, I now know that the photos were of an Order of St. Franklin event, some sort of post-ceremony after-party, and every guy there was a member of the secret society. What that ceremony was, Delilah didn't know. That's what she'd been hoping to figure out that night. That's probably why she wanted me to go with her, to act as her wingman so she could do some sleuthing. But knowing her, being alone hadn't stopped her from poking around, even if she thought it was risky. There's a part of me that's desperate to draw some sort of connection between the secret society and Delilah's death. 
Ever since the cops delivered the news about her overdose, I've wanted someone to blame other than her. I've wanted there to be a reason for her death other than pure waste. If I can somehow pin it to the Order of St. Franklin, then I don't have to be so furious at her for messing up so badly. As far as I'm concerned, screw the Order of St. Franklin and everyone associated with it, including Ryan. I'm gonna burn it down. I navigate to Reddit and sign in as Mackenzie. I go straight to the dead air board, where the very first message is a piece of good news from a familiar name. Pod Esquire. I've heard through the legal grapevine that the Kentucky Innocence Project is considering looking into Brandon McDonald's case. Apparently, after listening to Dead Air, a few students at the UK College of Law started doing some legal research on their own and took it to the KIP to get them on board. It's still too early to know for sure what this means in practical terms and whether they'll even be taking his case on. Unfortunately, the legal system exists to perpetuate a criminal conviction, which means reopening any criminal case is extraordinarily difficult. But it's a good sign that they're interested. It may mean we're on the right track. Good job, everyone. Normally, an announcement like that would make my day. But right now, I have other concerns. I start a new topic. I make it short and sweet. Topic. The Order of St. Franklin. What do we know about it? I hit enter and sit back, waiting for the Redditors to do what they do best. Mentally, I begin planning out my next podcast. The fastest way to destroy a secret society is to spill all of its secrets, and that's what I intend to do. I plan to leave Delilah out of it, of course. There's no need to bring her into this, especially since I already have a reason to be looking into the secret society as part of my investigation into Peg's death. It's the basis of Dick Carlyle's alibi, after all. Delilah may have started the investigation into the Order of St. Franklin, but it's up to me to finish it. For her. 8. Since I can't use any of the college campus equipment for my show, I record the next episode in my apartment while Kara is at work. I bought a used mic and built myself a little fort of blankets to dampen any ambient noise. It's hot and stuffy, but it works, and that's what matters. I take a deep breath and hit record and begin. Freemasons, the Illuminati, Skull and Bones. Any of those names sound familiar? They shouldn't. Technically, they're secret societies, but it seems these days it's impossible to keep anything a secret. A simple internet search will give you a list of Bonesmen, the name for members of Skull and Bones, It's a list of the rich and powerful. There are former presidents, Supreme Court justices, secretaries of war and defense and state, governors, CEOs, publishers, financiers. If there's anything these secret societies have in common, it's that their members tend to be white, male, Protestant, and deeply privileged. The members of the Order of St. Franklin, Kentucky's very own secret society, is no exception. They're the lead I teased you with last episode, the one I've been investigating. I know what you're thinking. What does any of this have to do with Pig Graham's murder? Maybe nothing. Maybe I'm chasing a bad lead. But somehow, I don't think so. In fact, I think the Order of St. Franklin may be a new suspect in Pig Graham's murder. At the very least, I think they bear closer examination especially when you consider that Peg Graham might not be the only secret society wife who met an unfortunate end. I pause, letting that sink in. Then I give the intro. Welcome to Dead Air, where M is now for Midnight, Mackenzie, and Murder. So, the Order of St. Franklin, a secret society that has existed right under our very noses for generations— Now, I know some of you are already rolling your eyes, wondering if I've gone off the deep end into conspiracy theory territory. Trust me, I asked myself the same question. I'm interrupted by the incessant buzzing of my phone. Growling in frustration at the fact that this means I'm going to have to re-record the introduction, I swipe it out of my pocket and answer with a surly, Hello? There's a long pause that can only be the delay of a telemarketer, and I'm about to hang up when a mechanical voice comes on the line. This is a collect call from... 
There's a pause, and Brandon McDonald states his name before the mechanical recording continues. An inmate at the Kentucky State Penitentiary Correctional Facility. To accept the charges, press 1 now. I'm so stunned it takes me a minute to realize I have to do something. I fumble with my phone, mashing the one key to accept the call. In a panic, I realize my phone isn't set up to record, but my computer is still recording for the podcast, and I fumble to put my phone on speaker so the mic can pick it up. There's a click, and then a new voice comes on the line. It has a familiar, soft Irish lilt to it. Hello, is this Mackenzie Walker? I nod, but of course he can't see me. I remember the look on his face when he lunged across the table. This is she. This is Brandon McDonald. I know. I wasn't expecting to hear from you. Everything okay? There's a pause, then a sigh. I'd like to talk to you about Peg, about what really happened that night. Okay. I wait for him to say more. He doesn't. Go ahead. I'd prefer not to do this over the phone, if that's okay with you. Okay. I say it a little more hesitantly this time. Last time I drove all the way up there, you weren't too inclined to talk about things. What changed your mind? What does it matter? I swallow back a sigh of frustration. Well, how do I know you're not just wasting my time? You don't. He's not exactly demonstrating a willingness to be open about things, but there's no way I'm saying no. And though the idea of being right across the table from him again makes my skin crawl, there's another option that will have us in a room with plenty of other people. I can drive up there Saturday for a visitor's day. Would that work? Sure. And, uh, thanks for understanding. I know it's a long way, and I wasn't exactly... Of course. I'm looking forward to talking again. There's another long pause, but no way am I hanging up first. But before I can ask anything more, he says... See you Saturday. And the call disconnects. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Air is created by Gwenda Bond. Written by Gwenda Bond, Rachel Kane, and Carrie Ryan. Performed by Lynn Norris. Produced by Lydia Shama. Executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. You're listening to Adrenaline, Dead Air. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Adrenaline is produced by Nicole Kreuter and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Devin Shepard. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Bagala. Original cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.